ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Alexander McCall Smith. <laughs> Um, I'd like to start by admonishing you. Alexander and I have been waiting backstage since yesterday morning. <laughs> and I think it's terribly rude, highly unexpected, of the Emirates Airline Festival to be keeping such an illustrious author waiting such a long time. Uh, many of you will know uh, there has been weather in the United well, I Kingdom. Can't, I can't open my water. Oh. <laughs> oh, God, you need a man. He's, he's, You've he's sent a to... boy to do a man's job again. He's got to do some work. Thank <laughs> you. There we go. Uh, many of you know these facts, but I shall brief you. Alexander McCall-Smith is one of the world's, in fact, probably the world's now most prolific and most popular authors. For many years, he was a professor of medical law. Then, after the publication of a small book called The Number One Ladies' Detective Agency series. It has sold over 25 million copies. He's devoted his time to the writing of fiction and has seen his various series of books translated into over 46 languages and become bestsellers throughout the world. The last time we spoke, I think he sold over 40 million books. I know it's horrible to talk about statistics, but as an opening gambit, we've known each other for a long time. We can, have indeed, yes. Can I ask you some personal questions? Well, depends, depends. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's hear them and see whether I want to answer them. Fair enough. If, if I don't want to answer them, I'll do what politicians do and change the subject. Answer the question uh, you wish you'd been asked. That's right. I mean, the, when you see politicians being interviewed, it's extraordinary, isn't it, how they manage to avoid giving an answer to the question. It's a really terrific skill. They must go for, for, for lessons in this and how to change the subject. So have a bash, Paul, and see whether I answer <laughs> I was, what I was, you... Um, I was about to ask you, how much do you charge for giving those lessons and how to avoid <laughs> answering something? I want, I want to know, what does that success, when you hear about the statistics, mm. as I'm sure you do from your publisher and from your agent, about the number of languages mm. translated into, the number of sales, that sort of thing, what does that mean to you? Well, I, I suppose... What's your next question? <laughs> I, I you haven't told me yet. <laughs> I, I, I suppose, uh, from my point of view, uh, my, my feeling as far as uh, any measure of success that the books have met is gratitude, uh, because I feel uh, that um, uh, tremendously privileged, um, and I really do feel this, actually that somebody is reading the books that I, I write, and that's uh, I, I feel that that is a great privilege in this life, that you sit there and you write a book and then, and then somebody reads it. Uh, now, because many people start their career as an author writing the books, and then nobody reads it. And ma many authors, that is their fate. I'm aware uh, of that, personally. Nobody, no, 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 oh, Paul, I'd read anything you wrote. I mean, don't, don't you worry. I mean, I will buy any book you, you, you write. Um, so there is, there is that. There's a sense of, of gratitude to the readers that, that they want to get involved in a conversation with, with the characters that you've created in the, in, in the books. And thereafter, uh, I suppose you don't really think about it very, very much, in that I don't, I don't really think about these matters very much. My job is to write the books, uh, which I enjoy doing. Uh, I very much enjoy meeting the readers. Um, I very much enjoy hearing from the, the readers. People write to me about the books, etc. And that... That, to me, is, is, is the reward, is the fact that we're a sort of club, that um, I feel that uh, readers uh, adopt the characters, become involved in the characters, they write to me, we, we try to write back to everybody 
who writes a letter that we actually get. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid the letters don't get to me, which is a subject of great embarrassment for me and a cause for great embarrassment. And sometimes publishers will send on uh, a letter six months after it's been received, and I feel so awkward about that. But uh, we generally try to, to, to respond to, to people. And it's just a great source of pleasure uh, from, from my point of, uh, point of view um, that, uh, that people will read the, read the books. It's a much of a pleasure for us. We'll come, we'll, we're going to have a bit of a voyage around mm -hmm. your writing because there are so many series. We have obviously number one, Ladies Detective, 44 Scotland Street, Isabel Dalhousie, first one, Eaglefeld, Corduroy Mansions. I'd like to start with, because something's happened in the last couple of years, you've written a couple of standalone novels, not least The Good Pilot, Peter Woodhouse. Yes. How, where did the standalones come from, and what would you like to tell us about Peter Woodhouse? Well, the, the standalone novels are, are, in a sense, the exception to my usual fare, in that I write, as you, as you know, a number of seri series. Mm -hmm. And uh, the standalones are, the, the, um, in culinary terms, the amuse-bouche between the, between the main, main series. And I, I rather like doing them, because I, I will have an idea about what might make a novel, the story that might make a novel. So it's a great opportunity for me to sit down and, and, and write, uh, write about that one, that one thing. So The Good Pilot, Peter Woodhouse, um, started in, in a rather curious way, in that I, in a number of my books, uh, I have characters who are dogs. Uh, you know, in other respects... Uh, they're standard characters, but they just happen to be dogs. And they, they, they lead their canine life down amongst the dogs. And I'm very interested in how dogs look at the human world. Because dogs feel that they're part of our world, and indeed they are. Way back, dogs entered into an agreement, a sort of treaty, uh, with uh, human beings. That they would come in, they'd throw in their lot with, with us. It's a very interesting, interesting issue. Dogs, I don't know whether you know this, Paul, but dogs were originally wolves. Uh, now, that means they weren't very friendly. And so what we did was we identified the friendlier sort of wolves, and we said, well, we'll work with you. Mm -hmm. And the wolves at that stage said, well, we're not really getting involved with you bunch. And um, then we domesticated them, and uh, dogs then eventually threw in the towel. They said, we're, we're, we, we accept. We're not going to remain part of the dog. It was a sort of Brexit. Uh, <laughs> a, was, a dog's Brexit? A dog, it was a dog. <laughs> oh, that's very good. Thank Paul. you, sir. You, you don't need to say anything else. I think it's very funny. <laughs> that's so funny. That really is good. Um, <laughs> Off the cuff. Oh, jolly good. And he didn't set me up to, to, to say that. No. That was that was spontaneous. I'm not that smart. Well, that's you know that's why 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 people invite him to do this sort of conversation. <laughs> and uh, but dogs dogs obviously there were dogs who, who obviously said no we we, we want to remain uh, feral, and um, uh, then the other dog said no no we 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 join in. And, and so the dogs have been with us. I don't know where this is going, by the way. But, uh, I just realised your punchline may have been my ad lib, and I've walked over your joke. <laughs> you haven't done. So the, so the dogs joined it. And dogs, it's really interesting. I, I love looking at dogs when they're around human beings, because they, they identify, they've got their pack. The key to the understanding of dogs is that they're pack animals. Mm. So they have an idea of who's in the pack, and it's their family. And they are very concerned about people in their family. That's why a dog will 
If you take a dog for a walk, a dog will often be looking to check up that everybody's present because mm. they, they're, they're aware of, 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 of that. And uh, dogs, I feel, spend a lot of time thinking about us and their position with us, their role with us, but they don't quite get it. They don't really quite understand what the, the deal is. And, you know, for example, dogs don't quite understand door handles. Uh, dog scientists have been working on this for some time, but they've never really cracked the problems. <laughs> so that's why dogs can't open doors. Because uh, they haven't reached that stage of evolution. Whereas we've been able to open doors for some time, or most of us. I mean, some... <laughs> Some of us are not so good, but, but, mo but many of us have worked that out. Right. Uh, Paul, you're going to have to change something. But, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I reckon put, you're I, good for another ten seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I, put dogs, I put dogs into my books. In the Scotland Street books, I've got this dog, Cyril, who's quite uh, popular with the readers. Mm -hmm. And he's the only dog in Scotland who's got a gold tooth. He's got this gold tooth which was put in his mouth uh, by a dentist uh, at a dinner in the Scottish Arts Club some years ago. And uh, Cyril, is, uh, when he opens his mouth and smiles, the light catches his, his gold tooth. And Cyril is owned by an artist, a portrait painter called Angus Lordy in the books. And Angus Lordy is a very good portrait painter who's got nothing but contempt for modern installation art, and in particular the Turner Prize. I don't know what your view on the Turner Prize is, but the Turner Prize, in my view, is utterly banal, just complete rubbish. These, you know, piles of old bricks or installations or whatever. And Angus Lordy has trained his dog Cyril to lift his leg whenever... <laughs> when anybody says turn a price. <laughs> and some of the readers, some of the readers didn't like that. And um, I, had, I had letters from very sniffy readers saying, well, some of the Turner Prize artists are very good. They are. They're all absolutely <laughs> dreadful rubbish. And so Cyril is... Uh, so he did that. The other, the other great problem that Cyril has, Cyril has, like many of us, he has a big moral temptation. I mean, many of us have got a problem with temptation. And Cyril's problem is that he wants to bite the ankles of one of the other characters, Matthew, when he sees Matthew's legs underneath the... Uh, coffee table in Big Lou's Cafe, uh, Cyril just really wants to bite them. Apparently they're particularly tempting to dogs. And uh, he knows that if he does that, he'll be whacked by his owner with a folded-up copy of the Scotsman newspaper. So this is a big, a big issue for, 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 for Cyril. So, so uh, other dogs, there's a dog in my Corduroy Mansions books. Uh, he's called uh, Freddy de la Haye, and he's a Pimlico Terrier, which is a breed that I invented. Some people think it exists, it doesn't. <laughs> and uh, Freddy de la Haye is, is a great dog. He had a bad start in this life. Uh, he started off life as a sniffer dog at Heathrow Airport. He was one of these dogs who went and sniffed for the drugs. And then he was a victim of political correctness because they discovered that all the sniffer dogs at Heathrow Airport were male. And this was unfair to the female dogs. And so they fired half of the sniffer dogs and replaced them with female dogs. Bad mistake. Because that meant all the male dogs were more interested in the female dogs than in the drugs. And the drugs flooded into the country. Absolutely dreadful. So Freddie LeHay. Sorry, I'm getting around to this book that you... I don't think you are at all. It's been so long I've forgotten the title. 
uh, the good pilot Peter Woodhouse. It's uh, Peter Woodhouse is a dog. Oh, and see. He's, that's <laughs> the that's the connection you see. There is a connection. There's a rhyme and reason to this. Peter Woodhouse is a dog, and he's he he's a central character in the in the book. It's set during the Second World War, and it's a story of about uh, a, a woman uh, who Eval, who is a, a land girl. You know these ladies who went and worked in the land and they uh, helped harvest the turnips and whatnot because often the young men had gone off to into the forces. And uh, so it's a story of, of this land girl, Val, and her romance with um, uh, uh, an Air Force pilot. Uh, he's an American uh, Air Force pilot because there were many units of the American uh, Air Force uh, in, in Britain at that time. And... Um, but Peter Woodhouse is in the background, this dog who's called, has a strange name, Peter Woodhouse. And so we see, I don't, it's not anthropomorphic, we don't have the dog thinking thoughts above his station or anything of that sort. But he, he is there as a mute witness to these great historical events. So it's, it's a romance in a, in a sense. Uh, and it carries through, through the days of the Berlin airlift. Um, which was a, an extraordinary, and then ends more or less. Uh, well, I think it ends in the 1980s, that sort of period. But it's, it, it goes through those big historical events. So it's a story of friendship, romance, and forgiveness and understanding. Uh, in the back in the background, also is a friendship between uh, a German lady and this 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 uh, English English woman Val. And uh, so I, it's a subject that I, I find very interesting. I, I think a couple of aspects um, particularly attract me in that story is, is one that at that particular time uh, there was an immense challenge placed before very ordinary people who were faced with a terrible, terrible threat and they responded uh, in the most remarkable way. When you think, and I've written another book about that period, I wrote a book called Lars Orchestra Saves the World, which has yes. also had, um, in that case, an RAF pilot, a young man, and a Polish, a Polish pilot, pilot in the Polish Air Force. And uh, these people were faced with this dreadful existential challenge. And these young men of 18 19 responded in this very courageous way and they saved they saved uh, Europe from uh, a, a, a terrible a terrible tyrant, tyrant yes. uh, which was uh, now we put all that behind behind us mm -hmm. uh, that's the past and 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 you know when one doesn't rake over old coals but actually really what an amazing thing those young men did. Right. They got into those planes. They knew that they had, you know, on average, three or four weeks. And they didn't. Yep. And um, so that, that, that's what uh, the good pilot Peter Woodhouse is about. And it has right. a happy ending. Because I go in for happy endings. I tend not to go in for the, for the um, uh, upsetting endings. Thank you, Sadie. Uh, can I just point out, we, we've talked about one book. It's yes. taken 17 minutes. Right. You've written 73 titles. <laughs> you did bring sandwiches. 
I've just spent three days in Glasgow Airport. There's no problem. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this would be but nothing to me. Can I just point out, there was a look in your eye when you were discussing this book that I've seen once before in an author, just once before in an author, mm. and I'm sorry if you don't like this comparison, but the author was a man called Michael Morpurgo. Oh, he's a great man. A great man. A wonderful man. And I know that you've met him. Yeah. And when you were talking about the dog in this, yeah. I saw the look, that same look you just had in, your, yeah. in his yeah. eye when I said, what are you working on now? And he told me the story that he was working with, it's very difficult to work out, and I'm trying not to do anthropomorphization. Yeah. And I said, do you have a title yet? And he looked at me and said, I've got three options. What do you think? And he showed me this list, and of course, one, wow. of, them, one of the three options was Warhorse. My goodness, yeah. Same look when you were yeah. discussing this. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for pointing that out. We're still talking about standalones. Yes, yeah. Let's do it this way. You write fiction. I, I don't think I've ever read any non-fiction. I have written some you, non-fiction, have some. but not very much. No, I, I, I do. And medical law is not my thing. Well, so. no, no, no. I, I, I've, I've written a book about Edinburgh called A Work of Beauty, which is all about Edinburgh. I've written a book about W.H. Auden, the poet, yes, and of so on. But generally speaking, it's fiction, yes. But I'd like to know how much of your fiction is inspired by real events. And the reason I ask is you have another standalone novel, which I remember, I think we spoke about a year, mm. ago, a year or two ago, which involved Italy and a vehicle. Yes, that's called My Italian Bulldozer, and that is based on... Now, is that fiction? Because it's based on a real experience, because sometimes with, with fiction, um, the author uses things that have happened to himself or herself mm. and uh, makes them into, into a novel. And My Italian Bulldozer uh, actually is based on a personal experience I had uh, a couple of years ago. May I tell you about it? Please. It, just, um, it was... It was a few years ago, two or three years ago. I had a bit of work to do, and I had to finish it. And I thought that I needed to get away from all disturbances. And uh, I spoke to, to Elizabeth, my wife, about this and said, you know, can I get, get, get off somewhere too? And she said, that's fine. Why don't you go to Italy? Uh, because I'm very keen on Italy. And uh, go, go somewhere in Italy and just to take yourself off and, and finish, finish the book. So... That was fine. So I got uh, uh, a ticket uh, that took me from, Pisa, uh, from Edinburgh to Pisa and uh, went off in the plane. And on the plane, I was going to go to a place called Montalcino, which is a lovely hill town in Italy where they produce a very fine wine called Brunello di Montalcino. Uh, and it's one of the best of the Italian wines. And um, so I went um, off on, on the plane... And on the plane, I got talking to the man sitting beside me uh, about this, that, and the next thing. It's a great pity these days that you don't talk to people in planes, mm. because what a, what a shame. In the old days, as we fondly call them, you used to talk, say to the person, you're going to spend eight or nine hours on a long flight in the company of somebody. least you can do is say, my name is Sanso. You don't have to give your own name. You can give an assumed name. I never thought uh, of that. <laughs> and give a false name. I'm going uh, to be you tomorrow. Well, that's like... right, yes. I would say I'm, I'm Paul Blazer. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but usually, you just have a... You don't have to talk very long. Just to, but that doesn't... Have, everybody's encapsulated in their electronic mm -hmm. cocoon these days. And they're all doing their, their, um, their email. And um, anyway, uh, on this flight, I did talk to the chap next to me. And he was an Italian businessman who... Uh, he'd been in Scotland selling ceramic tiles... And uh, 
he uh, was very, we had very enjoyable, agreeable conversation. And when we arrived in Pisa, we said goodbye to one another and wished one another all the best and went off. I got out, went into the booking, uh, into the arrival hall and went to the car hire desk and I had arranged for the rental of a car. Went up to the desk, said, uh, I've rented a car here, this is my ID. And the young man behind the desk said, no booking. And I said, no, I have rented and you've sent me an email which I'd printed out. I showed them the email that says, reservation of such and such a car. Forget what sort of was, some sort of field. Uh, here it is. And uh, he said, this is no longer valid. And so I said, but, you know, you've come. And uh, I said, okay, well, if you can't give me that car, give me another car. And he said, no, I'm sorry, terribly sorry. This is a holiday weekend. All our cars are out, no vehicles. And at this stage, my new friend from the plane was walking behind me. And he, uh, he came over. He saw this developing. He came over and said, is everything all right? And I said, well, frankly, it isn't. Uh, I'd reserved a car, and these people say they aren't honoring the reservation. He said, don't worry. I've got a friend who's got a vehicle rental place just a couple of miles from here. Come with me, and nice we'll fix you up. Well, the Italians are like that. They're wonderfully warm people. They just want to help you, and they're, 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 they're such charming, helpful people. And he said, come with me, and uh, we'll go and see my friend, and he'll fix you up. So got in his car, and off we drove. A couple of miles later, we came to this vehicle rental place, and a uh, wonderful um, greeting from his friend. Oh, come in, come in, how are you, etc. And uh, he explained to his friend what had happened to me, and the friend said, oh, I'm so sorry, this is a holiday weekend. All our cars are out, and we've only got one vehicle here remaining, and that is a bulldozer. <laughs> uh, so... I said, I can't, I, I can't drive a bulldozer, I, I can't drive. And I showed him my license and said license, my UK license said license to drive cars. And he said, no, 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 in Italy, cars include bulldozers. So I was in a really difficult position because these people were being so helpful, so tremendously helpful. So, oh, well, okay. So I really felt I had to sign the agreement. And so I signed the agreement. And you know, when you rent a vehicle, you go out and you inspect it. And so I went out and I walked around the bulldozer. It seemed fine to me. And I got in. And he showed me how to do it. He said, you, this is the ignition here. You do that. And this lever here, that's forwards, backwards. That other lever there is the blade. Don't touch that one. Just do it. Forward, back. So I drove off in the bulldozer, Paul. And... I, and I headed for Montalcino, and, uh, which was some distance away. It took me some time. Uh, but the thing about traveling on a bulldozer is that you're very high up. And so you, you get a very good view of the surrounding features. And of course, you get this very good view of the surrounding features. And if there are any features you don't like, well, you're on a bulldozer. So off we went, and we arrived in Montalcino. And I went to the hotel, uh, the Albergo Il Giglio, the Lily Inn, really lovely uh, hotel. Unfortunately, they had my reservation. They said, oh, yes, we've got you here. And yes, you can park your bulldozer around the side. <laughs> and so I set up there, and I got an awful lot of work done over the following two weeks, got an awful lot of work done. Every morning, I went into a cafe in the center of town, uh, this little village, uh, the uh, lovely Fantasy Cafe, 
And I went in there, and I had a cup of coffee. And I got to know the locals, particularly the local priest, who was a very interesting man. We chatted about this, that, and the next thing. He came in for his coffee at the same time that I came in. And uh, so we had this, uh, these good conversations. And two days before I was due to go, go home back to Pisa, uh, he said to me, you know, my brother's got a wine estate just outside Montalcino, and he wondered whether you would like to come and have lunch tomorrow. And I said, well, thank you very much indeed. I'm delighted to do that. And then the priest said, could we go on your bulldozer? Because his car was in the garage. So I said, fine, because there was a spare seat in the bulldozer. So the next morning, the priest and I set off in the bulldozer to the brother's wine estate, got a terrific welcome from the, from the brother, you know, typical Italian hospital. Oh, great to see you. Just a simple Tuscan lunch, eight courses. And uh, so we went in. And uh, afterwards, after lunch, the brother got talking to me, and he said, you know, I'm a wine producer here. I said, yes, I, I, I'd heard that. And he said, Mont Brunello de Montalcino, this very expensive wine, is just produced in a very restricted area. There's a zone of production, and if you grow your, your vines in that zone of production, you can call your wine Brunello de Montalcino, and you get a much, much better price. Mm. If you're just outside the zone of production, then you have to sell your your wine as Rosso de Montalcino, and you get paid much less. And I said, oh, yes. And he said, I'm in the Rosso de Montalcino category because I'm just outside the boundary of the zone of production of Brunello de Montalcino. And then he said, the boundary is a low stone wall. <laughs> uh, and then he said, do you think you could possibly? And I, uh, you know, what could I do, Paul? I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't say no. So I got on my bulldozer and I reversed and I went back and I took quite a good run at it and, I, and, and it took me about 45 minutes, but I shifted the boundary of the zone of production of Brunello de Montalcino so it included his estate. He was so grateful. They were both so grateful. And he went afterwards and he said, come back in, come back in. And he took a bottle of wine from his shelf, of his wine from the shelf, and we toasted one another in what was now Brunello de Montalcino. <laughs> and here was me for so many years reading your books thinking, he's making it all up. <laughs> well, that may or may not be true, but nonetheless. <laughs> Parts of it. <laughs> Can we do a little quick roundup? Um, that's who here reads 44, has read 44 Scotland Street? Good, enough of you to make this question worthwhile. What is the latest of 44 Scotland Street? Well, the latest book is a book called A Time of Love and Tartan. That's volume 12 in the, in the books. This is a serial novel, which I write, I publish it chapter by chapter as I write it in the Scotsman newspaper, and then it appears as a book. And I love writing that because it can go all over the place. In fact, it often does go all over the place. And um, I'm also very fond of... of uh, well, there's a little character in that called Bertie, who's a little boy. Mm -hmm. And Bertie, uh, he started off at the beginning of the series, 12 books ago, he started off uh, aged uh, six, and he's been six for eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he recently had uh, a birthday. He became a seven. Finally. Um, well, it became a little bit odd, because all the other characters were 
were, were, were getting a bit older, but Bertie remained sick, rather because I liked him so much. Bertie is a very attractive uh, character. Uh, Bertie's problem is his mother. Uh, most little boys have a problem with their... Many little boys have a problem with their mother. If you ask a little boy, age six or whatever, what's your problem in this life? As often as not, they'll look around just check uh, that mummy isn't there, and then say, well, mummy, actually, is the problem. And... Uh, uh, because uh, uh, of ambitious mothers. And, you know, you can tell. When I go somewhere, I can tell whether this is ambitious mother territory. You just pick up the vibe. It's just a slight... So you, you know whether you're in pushy mother territory. It's a universal problem. Mm -hmm. All sorts of places have it. I was in Vancouver a few years back, and I was talking to somebody about the pushy mother problem, and this chap said, oh, yes, oh, yes. And he said, West Vancouver is the epicenter of pushy motherdom in all Canada. There are more pushy mothers in West Vancouver than all the prairie provinces put together. They're all there. And he gave me an example. He said he was in a coffee house recently, and this woman came in pushing the pushchair uh, stroller with her, her, her one-and-a-half-year-old son in it with his little hands hanging down on either side. And she said... He gets so tired after his dance classes. <laughs> and Bertie's, Bertie's problem is his mother um, makes him... Um, she makes him learn Italian. Mm -hmm. He has conversazioni, Italian conversazioni lessons so he can appreciate Italian culture. He goes to yoga classes. He goes to yoga classes called Yoga for Tots mm -hmm. where the children are so small they can't even sit up. They have to be pushed into the yoga position by their pushy mothers. Uh, <laughs> He um, has saxophone lessons. Mm -hmm. He has to learn the saxophone. He does a very good rendition of As Time Goes By from Casablanca, although in his case it doesn't. And uh, <laughs> he also has psychotherapy. He has psychotherapy from a famous psychotherapist uh, called Dr. Hugo Fairburn, author of that great classic of uh, child psychotherapy, Shattered to Pieces, Ego to Solution in the Three-Year-Old Tyrant. And... Uh, <laughs> All the time, Bertie just wants to be a little boy, ordinary little boy, doing ordinary little boy things, and he's got to have all the psychotherapy and yoga and things like that. And what he really wants in this life is a Swiss Army penknife. Of course. That's the thing. That's what most little boys want, mm -hmm. and most men as well. Actually, when you come down to it, want a Swiss Army penknife. Every so often, I give Bertie a, um, a, a glimpse of freedom. But Bertie, when, in the start of the books, he goes to an advanced kindergarten, doesn't go to an ordinary kindergarten goes to an advanced kindergarten. And uh, while he's at the advanced kindergarten, his mother, Irene, goes to a flotarium uh, where she floats uh, to uh, de-stress. And uh, she's in her flotation chamber one day, and her mobile phone goes, and it's the principal of the advanced kindergarten, Miss Christabel McFadden, on the line, says, would you kindly come up to the advanced kindergarten? There has been an incident. And Irene gets out of her flotation chamber. She goes up to the advanced kindergarten to be greeted by a hatchet-faced Miss McFadden who says, there has been an incident. One of the children has written graffiti on the toilet wall. And Irene bristles and says, well, why do you look at me? Why do you think it's my Bertie? And Miss McFadden says, because he's the only one who can write. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then she says, and it's in Italian. <laughs> And poor little Bertie. I do give him these moments of freedom where his mother's removed 
And on one occasion, uh, his mother's <laughs> removed. She gets trapped in a relief r r lorry taking supplies, relief supplies to Romania. And they only hear her banging on the side when they reach Hungary. And uh, so Bertie has a bit of freedom. And uh, he, uh, he's, he goes fishing with his father. They don't quite catch a fish. But they go into the hills and they get lost. And they end up at a farmhouse. The farmer's wife says, oh, come away and we'll make you a cup of tea. And then I'll get my husband to, to drive you back. And Bertie realizes there's a real six-year-old boy leading a real boy's life in this house, a little boy called Andy. And Andy says to Bertie, Bertie, would you like to see my things? And Bertie says, oh, yes, please. Andy takes him up to his room, and Andy opens a drawer, and there in the drawer is not one, but six Swiss Army penknives. And Bertie's little heart fills with joy at the sight of this. Andy takes one of the Swiss Army penknives and says... This, Bertie, is a Swiss army penknife. The Swiss army fights only with penknives. And Bertie says, yes, I've heard that. And so, poor little boy. So I don't know what we're going to do. I, I, have, I have managed to send his mother up to Aberdeen to do a PhD in uh, the works of Melanie Klein. And that's giving Bertie a bit of freedom. So things are looking up for him uh, uh, a bit. But uh, I love those characters. And I get a lot of letters from people about Bertie, and they say, when are you going to relieve Bertie of his mother? When are you going to... And I can't really, because I don't... I can't have anything horrible happen to her. Right. Because uh, we don't want Bertie to lose his mother. So I've taken the next best thing, which is send her to Aberdeen. That... <laughs> which actually is, is a nice place. I hear his point out. Uh, Aberdeen's fine. Aberdeen's absolutely... I uh, like Aberdeen a great deal. I have to say that. Um, but it's just a bit cold. Uh, but there we are. So uh, relief is in store for, for Bertie. And I'll do the next novel in that series at the end of this, this year. And I'll have all sorts of things happen, which I haven't yet thought of. But they, they Could might. be. Just be aware, your microphone is scraping. I've just realized your microphone is scraping on your jacket. May I pat you down? Yes. Like there a are, customs yeah. officer. There we go. Yeah, that may be a little better. Yeah. Um, corduroy mansions, what's yes. going on in the manch? Well, nothing really, uh, because I wrote three books in that series and I haven't yet written a fourth. People ask me to write a fourth. Uh, and I will. Well, I will one of these days, uh, Paul. And I'll give you a role in corduroy mansions, because I do put real people into my books and, and your, your appearance as a character in one of my books is long overdue. Are you serious? Uh, yes. I'm oh, absolutely. No, no, no. You will, will I be always... a dog? No, you won't. No. You, uh, any real people who go into my books always uh, uh, come out uh, very well. Uh, and I wouldn't dream of putting, uh, uh, making a critical role. It's all very positive. Because I do put, I do put real, real, people, real people in with their, their, their consent. And... Um, I, um, but they always are very nicely portrayed, so don't worry. Nothing unfortunate will happen I, to you. You Although have my I consent have, to murder me, if you wish. Well, no, I did have Ian Rankin. Ian Rankin, I put in, Ian in Scotland Street, mm. and he, he was shot with a bow and arrow at one stage, <laughs> but it was only a minor wound, and uh, <laughs> he was okay. So... Uh, <laughs> Um, Professor von Eagelfeld is yes. a very, uh, very dear to my heart. Can you, can you update us on him? Well, Professor von Eagelfeld, a professor, we should give him his full forgive title. Me, I mean, forgive me, forgive me, I mean, me. that's really very informal of Indeed. you to call him. He's Professor Dr. 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 Norris Kaza, Moritz Maria von Eagelfeld. And he's got two friends, 
uh, Professor Dr. 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 Norris Kaza, open brackets, moved, closed brackets, um, uh, Detlef Amadeus Unterholzer, and Professor Dr. Dr. Florianus Prinzel. And these are three German professors of philology, and uh, I've had great fun with them. Uh, the first book was called the was called Portuguese Irregular, Irregular Verbs, uh, in which that's where I started. I started writing writing those books. Uh, started as a, one story about Van Eekelfeldt in response to a suggestion by my close old friend, uh, Professor Dr. 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 Norris Kaza, Reinhard Zimmermann. And I was running, went for a run. Uh, we were jogging along the canal path in Edinburgh. My, my close friend, Professor Dr. 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 Norris Kaza, Reinhard Zimmermann and myself. And he's, he's a very tall German professor. He's about six foot five and a very fine tennis player. And he said to me as we were running, why don't you write a story about a German professor who can play tennis? And, <laughs> and so I said, well, quite a good idea. And I wrote a story about three German professors who couldn't play tennis. And they've got a book, though, because German professors feel that they can do anything if they've got the book. And they had a book called The Principles of Tennis by Captain Geoffrey Pempleton, one-time tennis champion of the University of Cambridge. And they read this book, and they went on to the tennis court, and they said, right, okay, you throw the ball, menu. And so, of course, they were so bad at it. Nobody got his serve over the net. And this book, The Principles of Tennis, was written before the introduction of the tiebreaker. So according to the rules, this game could never end, because nobody ever won his serve. So they, they realized this is an endless game, that there'd be never any progress. So they toss the book aside and say, well, so much for Cambridge scholarship. <laughs> and, uh, and then Professor Dr. 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 Norris Kaza, um, uh, Detlef Amadeus Unterholzer, says, uh, shall we go swimming? And Professor Dr. Dr. De, uh, Florianus Prinzel says, but we do, do, don't know how to swim. And then Professor Dr. 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 Norris Kaza um, Detlef Amadeus Unterholzer says, yes, but I've got a book. <laughs> <laughs> so we leave on that note. And so I, I, I wrote that and sent it off to Reinhardt, and he, say, he wrote back and said, very funny. And uh, um, why did you write a whole book? So I wrote the whole book about these German professors called Portuguese Irregular Verbs. And at that stage, this was before my books took off, and so I had to publish that myself because no, no... Uh, publisher in his right mind uh, would would publish a uh, work of fiction called Portuguese Irregular Verbs. So I, I published that. Uh, I printed with my friend Charlie McLean, we had a little imprint, and we printed 500 copies. And Professor Dr. 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 Norris Kaiser, Reinhard Zimmermann, bought 250. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent them off to his German professorial friends. And many of these people wrote to him and said, how very interesting. We know many people just like us. <laughs> and people, people said to me, what have you got against German professors? And I said, I said actually, nothing. Uh, I mean, many of my best friends are German professors. Uh, but German professors are the most privileged professors in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to get rid of a German professor, you have to have an act of parliament the local parliament. So, and they all have many assistants who, who can do all their research for them. So they are, they are a very privileged, privileged group. And so I'm just gently taking 
poking a bit of fun at uh, von Igvold. And I have great fun with him. I mean, he, on one occasion he goes off, he's an expert in, in Romance philology and Portuguese irregular verbs in particular. And he goes off to the Vatican Library to do some research into the use of Portuguese by Jesuit missionaries in Goa in the, in the old days. And there's some very important documents and books about that subject in the Vatican Library. So he's in the Vatican Library and another reader comes in not many people in the library at the time. Another reader comes in and sits at a table. And this other reader is quite noisy. He keeps sort of, people come and have a word with him and he beckons people across and he takes a couple of calls and well on. And von Eagelfeld's getting quite irritated by, by this. And eventually he goes over to this other reader and says, excuse me, do you not realize there's a rule of silence in a library. If you come into a library, you shouldn't talk. And you've come in here and you've talked to people and people come and brought you messages all day. And you really should realize that there are genuine scholars, such as myself, in this library, and we need silence. So you really give them peace of mind. This chap's a bit taken back. Van Egenfeld goes back to his desk. At the end of the day, the librarian, head librarian, who's called the prefect of the Vatican Library, comes up to Van Egenfeld and says, Professor Van Egenfeld, there was a bit of a row earlier on, and Van Eiffel says, yes, indeed, there was. There was a very noisy reader who created big disturbance, people coming to talk to him, sir. And I gave him a piece of my mind. I told him about this, and the librarian says, oh, no, oh, no. And Van Eiffel says, oh, no, oh, yes. Yes, he richly deserved that. And the librarian says, oh, no, oh, no. And Van Eiffel says, why, why are you saying, oh, no? And the librarian says, that was the Pope. <laughs> So you can see I write uh, social realism. Social realism. <laughs> may, if, may I be permitted a small anecdote? <clears throat> Some years ago, Sandy and I were doing an event at another literary festival in Oxford in the Sheldonian Theatre, which is a glorious, round, historic building in the heart of Oxford, with this incredibly ornate ceiling, a little bit like the Sistine Chapel. And we were talking about Portuguese irregular verbs, and Sandy was explaining about his, his German professorial friend, Professor Dr. Dr. Um, Reinhard Zimmermann. Reinhard Zimmermann, and say he's about six or five. And there was a small cough <laughs> from the upper gods of the Sheldonian theatre. It sounded like a small cough from God from the page. He said, actually, six foot five and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and that was him. He was there. And it was them. He was there. <laughs> he was a visiting fellow at All Souls at the time. Absolutely. And it was, he's, he's delighted to be in the books. He's very, very happy to be in the books because I put him in. Uh, they all talk about Professor Zimmerman, and when the, uh, but he never appears. They always say, Zimmerman will be interested in that, but we never, never see, see him. him. <laughs> <laughs> but he does, he does exist in real life. Well, thank you all very much. Oh, no, hold on, there's something else we should talk about. What hell was it? Uh, um, uh, books. Um, <laughs> small country in Africa. Botswana. Yes. Ah, Botswana, yes. What's happening? How is Maramotswe? Maramotswe is in very, very good health. Uh, I'm just writing at the moment volume 19 in the, in the series. Uh, it's going to be published in October, September, October. And it's called um, The Colours of All the Cattle. Uh, and so we're back with Mara Motswe in her office at the number one ladies detective agency with Mama Kutsi uh, there and Mr. J.L.B. Matakoni, that great garagist, and uh, Ma Potakwani of the Orphan Farm. And uh, I'm really enjoying writing it. I love my annual conversations with Mara Matsui. I never tire of them. I love being in her company. She's, she's the most wonderful, uh, tolerant, nice, understanding, 
uh, woman. Um, I haven't tired of her, and I, I'm, I'm going to continue with her, her uh, adventures. Um, and Mama Kutsi, I'm very fond of Mama Kutsi mm. as well. You know, she's a bit prickly, but uh, she's, 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 very, she's, she's, she's very, very good at heart. And, uh, She's still proud of her 99%? Oh, 97%. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, no, that crops up uh, every time. And I find that readers like the same jokes. Uh, you know, there's no need. Some writers feel they've got to come up with new jokes. I don't think that's necessary. I, I think you, you can say the same things um, for sort of 20, 30 books. Uh, absolutely fine. You know, you want to have a little bit of new stuff. But really, the, the, the central jokes, you've got to keep at 97%. That's what people want to hear. Yes. Uh, it's, it's the familiar. And it means that you feel you know these people. Mm. 97% uh, is, uh, is um, uh, a very important figure for Mama Kutsi. And she's got a baby now. She's got Itumelang Anderson Radavuti, uh, who's the only purring baby in Botswana. Uh, when you pick him up, he purrs, which I think is a lovely idea. And she's still, she has those shoes that talk to her. I never thought that I'd write books about talking shoes, but we do seem to have talking shoes in this book. And every so often, a little voice says, watch out, boss. And that's her <laughs> shoes. Very curious. It's called magic realism. It is called magic realism, exactly. And it's very, a very strong tradition in, in West Africa. There have been so many depictions of of Mara Matsue and Mama Kutsi, not mm. only obviously through your books, but also through um, radio plays, serializations, yes. TV. Mm. What is your association with those? I know that you collaborate on a lot of them. You actually write quite a lot of the screenplays and so on and so forth. I write... It's a very different medium. How does that change yeah. it for you? Yes, that's very interesting, Paul. I, I, write, the, I write the BBC uh, radio plays. Mm. I do two of those uh, Mara Matsue <laughs> plays every year. And so there's usually a, a couple of 45-minute uh, plays which um, follow on the publication of the last book. So I'll be, the last, the last uh, book was, um, uh, the, um, was the, the Unexpected Sisters, The House of Unexpected Sisters. Mm. So I'll be writing that quite soon. I don't know what my deadline is, but I'll be making that into two plays for the, for the BBC. So I do that. Um, and I also write uh, radio plays about my Scotland Street series, where I've just written the fifth series of radio drama of that, and that's five 15-minute plays, which uh, the BBC does. And uh, I, I enjoy, enjoy that. It's, uh, uh, I'm doing some screenwriting. I, I like screenwriting as, as well. And I also write, like uh, working with composers. I, I've, I've written uh, quite a lot for composers, um, poems which have then been um, set to music. Uh, for song cycles. I've got a new operetta uh, being premiered in April called The Tumbling Lassie, uh, which I really enjoyed doing. That's a curious story. Uh, it's, a, it's based on a real story. Uh, there was a case uh, that came before the Scottish courts in the very late 17th century, which was a very turbulent time for Scotland. I mean, most of Scottish history has been turbulent. Uh, when you say Scottish history, you think, yes, turbulent. And... Uh, <laughs> late 17th century, and it's the most extraordinary story, and as I say, it, it is a, a true story. Uh, there was a, a showman described as a mountebank, and uh, he had a show that he put on in the streets of Edinburgh, which were very um, foul-smelling and salubrious um, uh, uh, places in those days, and he had this show, and he had 
uh, a child acrobat who was known as the Tumbling Lassie, and she did wonderful somersaults and whatnot. And there was a woman, a Mrs. Scott of Harden, who came up from the borders, and she saw this wee girl, and she realized this wee girl was being exploited by this man. Apparently, he, she had oil rubbed into her joints to make her more supple and whatnot. And she took pity on this child, and she snatched her away from the show. This all actually happened. This is recorded history. And took her down to the borders. And where this poor child then experienced uh, proper childhood and love for the first time, they looked after her. The showman was so outraged, he sued the Scots. He went to court and he said, that child is my property. The mother sold her to me and I'm entitled to... And so the case went to court and it was the first decision in Scotland where the Scottish courts said slavery is not recognised in this country. So they said no slavery in Scotland. And they said specifically uh, a mother cannot sell her ban. This is, judge this is 16th century. Uh, 17th, 17th. Yes, oh, right, 17th. But before, yes, before, before emancipation. Good heavens. And so, so they, the child, we don't then know historically what happened to this wee girl, but uh, she, I imagine she went back with the Scott family mm. to the borders and was freed of this, this servitude. And I was approached by uh, a, a committee of lawyers who have an annual... Uh, ball in Edinburgh in aid of two anti-slavery uh, societies and they said um, would I give some, some books to this they called themselves the Tumbling Lassie Committee because of this famous case would I give some books for auction prize in the, at the ball dinner and I said no I'd like to write the story and so I approached Tom Cunningham who's a composer with whom I work quite extensively and said to Tom would you like to write the music for a, a, a little operetta called The Tumbling Lassie about the story? And Tom said, yes, I'd like to. And so we've written this operetta, and he's written lovely music for it. And we're going to have the premiere. We're going to have, we've got a child uh, gymnast. This little girl is coming, and she can do all the somersaults and whatnot while the music is Good heavens. So uh, I love working with composers. I really, really enjoy that. Quick question. When you're writing words and music, what comes first? The words, <coughs> excuse me, the words or the music? In, in our case, when I'm, when I'm working with Tom and indeed with other composers with, with whom I've worked, the words come first. Uh, so I write the libretto, uh, which may be uh, a sequence of poems or indeed a full-scale libretto. Right. And then I give it to the... Because I wrote a full opera with Tom called The Okavanga Macbeth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, write the, I write the words first. And then, usually, what happens, certainly with Tom Cunningham, he'll come to me and very occasionally he'll say, I need an extra syllable there, or okay. I need a strong, that's weak, it should be strong yep. um, break at that point. So, uh, but that's, that's uh, by and large, I know what he can write the music to, and he, he clicks with my words, so... So the words come first and then the, then the music, but not everybody works in that way. No. Now, does anybody here know the famous line of a great librettist and musician who worked together in films in the early 20th century when first asked on a television interview what comes first, the words or the music? He answered, voiced the check. <laughs> 
We have time for one last question, and then because Alexander has been waiting in the corridor for 48 hours for you to pitch up, he's had time to write a poem. Um, so if we're brief with the question and brief with the answer, you might get time for the poem, if you'd like to hear it, of course. Then we'll have the question first. Hello, Alexander. Um, Mara Motsui is such an inspiring female protagonist. When you were writing or when you thought about the book, was it deliberate that she had to be female? Uh, thank you for that. That's, that's a very interesting question. Uh, yes, that, was, that actually was deliberate uh, because I think it would, there would have been very different books if I had two men sitting in that office mm. because the conversation would be different. And two men sitting together in that office, the conversation, and this is not being rude about men, I mean, I know a number of men, um, <laughs> it wouldn't be so interesting. No. It, it really wouldn't. Because men talk about different things. Sometimes they not very much. Uh, uh, but they wouldn't talk about their... They, they'd talk in a totally different way from the way in which two, two women... Women's conversation is different. Mm. Now, it's difficult if you're a male. If you want to write about women's conversation, you want to find out what women are talking about, you sort of sneak up and try to listen, and they stop talking as you approach. Have you noticed that, Paul? I have. It's yeah. a serious problem for us. Mm -hmm. um, but I think women's conversation is, is different. It's more subjective. Women talk more about their feelings than, than men do. If you go into a bar and you listen to what men are talking about, a couple of men in the bar... They won't be talking about their feelings. Uh, it depends, I suppose, on the sort of bar you're going into. But, <laughs> but it just, you don't get that, really. Not um, often. Uh, and so it, it was just much better. I also wanted, in the case of the Botswana women, um, I had met many really um, admirable uh, women in Botswana, uh, very intuitive, very hardworking, etc., and I wanted to write about a particular sort of person who was a, a woman. Uh, often the women in sub-Saharan African countries are doing an awful lot. You know, they're, they're bringing up family, they're keeping the homes going, they're, they're working, and in traditional societies, they, they were the ones who were working in the fields. And the men were sitting around under the tree talking about, about various things. And uh, so, so I wanted to capture that. And I think it, it, it won't. So I, I really like writing about women's conversation. So many of my protagonists in the books are, are women, which I know is unusual because I think probably it's relatively unusual for a male author to write about women. women convincingly. Well, well, women novelists write a lot about men, men. very convincingly. Men says, yes, yeah. But um, men often their uh, protagonists will be other, other male characters. There is also the other factor that actually in the number one ladies detective agency books, J.L.B. Matacone, yep. if he was getting into bed every night with Gary Ramotswe, it would be very different. It would be, yes. Yes, yes that would be a different sort of book altogether. Yes. <laughs> so it's just yeah. as well that Grace Ramotswe is Ma <laughs> Ramotswe, not exactly. <laughs> so, I think, so I think that's... Uh, Although I do have male characters, I'm sometimes accused of being hard on the male characters. I don't think I am. I mean, J.L.B. Mashkoni is a very sympathetic He's very good one, yeah. character. The young apprentices, Fanwell and oh. Charlie, you know, they're feckless. But then, but then there are lots of young men of 1920 who are feckless, who, you know, who... Who are you? 
Yes, I think, I think men, I think this is another interesting, I mean, we're in very interesting territory here. I think may, many men don't mature until much later. And there is, apparently, there are psychologists who say that many men don't mature until at least 28. Mm. And then I take the view that that's probably the case with some obviously mature earlier on. Whereas I think women, women achieve maturity at an earlier stage. And I think there's quite a lot of psychological evidence there. It shows in, actually yeah. in school performance. You get the girls. The girls are doing much, much better in the public exams because the boys are, you know, still haven't settled down and the boys are still behaving irresponsibly. And there is, I read a very interesting article in the New Yorker about how teenage boys, are, their wiring is, is odd until they get into their 20s. And they, because of the hard wiring, neuro, neurological reason, they actually behave in a dangerous and irresponsible way until they, until they... I take the view that you've got lots of excuses if you're a male you have lots of excuses until you're 40. Yeah. And I think, I think after 40, not many excuses. But before 40, I would excuse virtually anything. Uh, <laughs> and, Alexander McCall-Smith, father to two daughters. And, I would say that. <laughs> and in some cases beyond 40, I mean, you may be able to push it to 50. And you'd say, well, he's only 48, you know, what can he expect? What can he say? <laughs> I'm now thinking of you as the young boy. Who taught you English? He, um, this is the man renowned for his well, writing, very prolific. You, you grew up in Africa. Now, who, was your, the, who was your teacher? Well, one of, the, one of the, the mother of somebody working here, I don't know, is she? Her name is Louise. Louise. She's that. That's Louise's mother uh, was my teacher, Miss Cargill, when I was seven. And so, and she was a jolly good teacher. You know, she really was a very... You tell, you tell your mum, because actually I learned, when I learned um, English grammar, um, it, was, it was, you know, it was a different world, and we had sentences, and you had to underline the clauses mm -hmm. in different coloured inks. Um, so the main clause, you'd uh, underline in blue, and then the adjectival clause would be in red, and so on. The underlined verb, is this a verb? Underline it twice, that sort of thing. So we actually learned English grammar which isn't taught anymore. Right. So um, that means that um, many people now um, don't know what a noun is uh, or, a, or, a, or a verb. And that's why many people speak a very strange language, uh, which we, we don't quite understand, uh, except like. There's a lot of like, you know, you see, that goes in, that's a very... Oh, dear, that's another subject. It really is. Uh, the French still teach their their children grammar, How and that's why they, they speak French so well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. We have to end the show. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your patience. Would you like to hear Alexander read? Uh, this, it's just a short piece. It's a very short, it's a poem, a short poem, just... Just three pages. Tell us how um, it came about and what this volume is. Well, this volume is called For the Love of Words, 84 uh, Voices from the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, and this is something which... Um, which uh, Isabel and her colleagues have published to um, celebrate this wonderful festival. And it is really a, a, a marvellous, a marvellous festival. Uh, it's, it's one of the, the great festivals of the, of the world. And I'm so delighted and privileged to, to actually be participating in the 10th version. I was here 
for the very first one, I Indeed think. Indeed you were. And then I came back for a, for a second one some years ago, and then, and then again. And they're wonderful occasions, festivals, because you, the exchange of ideas, you meet people, it's, it's just the, 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 the best possible way of spending one's time. And I must say, I mean, express the gratitude that I feel, which I think so many people feel, uh, that there's an airline that actually supports the arts in this, Quite. this way. And who've also got jolly comfortable aeroplanes as well. That's another, <laughs> another, when you're allowed another to get on the, by and, the weather. Well, no, no, they're jolly good. And, you know, really, the catering is very good as mm. well. You know, we, we had some very nice things. I had um, duck, slices of duck. Very you nice. Know, really good. I don't know whether the pilot cooked or not. I don't, I don't know. But, <laughs> but anyway, I, I thought that it would be appropriate to have a poem about airline pilots in this, this book in honour of uh, uh, the Emirates Airline. And so I wrote, I wrote a, a, a poem called The Language of Pilots, and this came to me because I had uh, been thinking about what you hear on aeroplanes. When you travel by aeroplane, you have these announcements made, and the announcements vary from airline to airline. Some airlines... They're very peculiar, and you can't... I find this, I'm afraid, when I'm traveling in America, I do quite a lot of touring in the States, and sometimes I have great difficulty in working out what they're saying to me, because they run their words together so quickly. And you just don't know what, what's being said. And you, they, they speak so quickly because they would want to get the message out. And, so, and the language is so pedestrian, so dull, uh, and of course it does involve circumlocutions. So, for example, they never say, we are now descending, or we're now making our approach to Dallas Airport or whatever. They say, at this time we are, you know, really, why can't they say now? So it's a peculiar language, these, these, uh, that you hear on airplanes. And I thought, what if airline pilots were poets as well. What if they used poetic language? And this is a poem about that. It's called The Language of Pilots. And I'll stand up to read this. So just imagine we're in the plane and suddenly on the public address system we hear a pilot who is going to use poetic English as opposed to functional English. This is the poem. They speak with high authority Elrons and wings respond to their touch. Their words are functional too. But why, I wonder, should a pilot not be a poet too and say, We now descend at last through banks of cloud, white fields as wide as any ocean, at least when viewed from where we are, a few moments ago or were. For it is Bernoulli's principle that lifts and keeps us here between the patient earth below and this empty, soaring sky. Ladies and gentlemen, rain falls in distant veils. Look from your windows to the starboard side of this metal tube we call an aircraft. Look out there and see the rain, the grey-white shafts of rain. Do you know that those wisps of cloud you see up above are crystals of ice falling like gossamer? Did you know that? Now, please, about your waists, affix the belts. You must, as slowly towards the earth we drop, to land's embrace, your belts adjust. We are a little late, 
But what are a few minutes, nothing more here and there, not much, I think. Goodbye, and take with you the things you brought, your few possessions. Goodbye until we meet again, and once more we carry you on wings of steel, on wings of steel, to places you would wish to go. Goodbye, dear friends. It matters not whether you're a member of the loyalty scheme we've got. <laughs> we love you all as parents love their children equally. Remember that, and please come back. Goodbye again, and cabin crew, unbar the doors, let light be seen, what secure what needs securing, and cross-check whatever that may mean. <laughs> Goodbye, for soon these great engines on landing will be silenced, and the earth, the patient earth, our mutual home, upon which we all may stand or sit, will embrace us once again. Welcome home. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Paul.